Have you guys heard of the term clap back? Raise your hand if you have. Okay. Not very many people. Uh, it, you could also say throwing shade, kind of the same idea. Clapback is a comeback, but not a kind comeback. It's like a cutting, snarky, put down comeback when, when you're having issues with somebody. So I'll give you some examples. So here's a clapback. I'd give you a nasty look, but you've already got one. That's clapback. Someday you'll go far. I hope you stay there. I'll never forget the first time we met, but I'll keep trying. Remember when I asked your opinion? Me neither. What doesn't kill you disappoints me. <laughs> That's clapback, all right? My favorite clapback, though, came from the sweetest person on earth, my wife. So let me set this up for you. You've probably heard this before, but um, on Sunday mornings, I'm excited. Maybe nobody else is, but I'm excited. And when I get excited, I usually sing or I do something, and I don't have an inside voice. You can ask the office. Like when I talk, it's, there's one volume and I ha it's loud. And I've always been that way. I have a voice that carries just loud. So on this particular Sunday, a couple of years ago, I came in from my study, we call it the rat shed, came in. My wife has been inside and she's trying to get five kids ready to go to church, right? So I'm out there in the study, just enjoying the Lord and praying and studying and thinking. And then I came in, I'm excited. I'm singing. Again, no inside voice. I'm singing loudly. So I come in, she's like, honey, do you have to keep singing? To which I responded, Charity, I'm not gonna apologize for my singing. To which she said, if you heard your singing, you'd apologize. <laughs> Brilliant clap back. Brilliant. She also has God on her side. Proverbs 27, 14. Whoever blesses his neighbor with a loud voice, rising early in the morning, will be counted as cursing. Okay, you win, sweetie. All right, you're right, I should be quiet. Part of the human condition is clap back. That when somebody says something or offends us or does something, we want to get back at them somehow, sometimes with our words, sometimes with something else, right? We call it retaliation, throwing shade, whatever you want to call it, avenging ourselves. We all have that in us. And it's been that way for all of human civilization. So there's a guy, a historian that went back 3,400 years and looked at all of kind of what we know about human civilization to figure out how often were we at peace in the last 3,400 years? In the last 3,400 years, we have had 268 years of peace, which means 92% of known human civilization, we have been at war because <laughs> we got clap back in us. We got retaliation in us and it never stays still, right? It always has to elevate. It gets more and more and more and builds and builds and builds. So what do we do with that kind of a world? Leo Tolstoy, great Russian author, 
wrote a book called War and Peace. And this was early in his life. And this was his philosophy on what you should do because of the human condition of retaliation and war and all this kind of stuff. Um, he actually changes at the end of his life and becomes a pacifist. But early on, he wrote this book called War and Peace. You can read it. It's great. And he has this character, Prince Andre. And they're about ready to go to battle against Napoleon. And uh, Prince Andre says this, and I'll try to explain what he means by this. One thing I would do, this is right on the eve of a battle. One thing I would do if I had power, I would take no prisoners. This is what he means. He goes on to explain, it's a long kind of section, that war has become safe. War has become a game. And so everyone knows if you go to battle and you start to lose, you just run up the, the white flag and surrender. You throw down your arms and you're safe, right? So then there, there's an out. There's always an out because war has become safe. So Tolstoy in War and Peace said, you have to make war dangerous again. That if I had a choice, he says, I would take no prisoners. Even if you raised up the white flag, we're gonna still slaughter you all. Even if you lay down your arms, we're gonna still kill every single one of you. Every soldier, every general, every king, you're all dying. And his argument was this, if war became that dangerous, if the stakes were that high, fewer people would engage in war. More people engage in war now because it's safe. That was his argument. Is that what we do? Take no prisoners. Because the stakes are much higher today. Not people on horses with a pistol or a sword. We have satellites guiding nuclear weapons. Do we take no prisoners? Is that the solution? I don't think so. Jesus has something to say about this human condition. And it's really really countercultural and brilliant. Let's go, Matthew chapter five, verse 38. We've been in this section now, it's gospel of the kingdom, and each one begins the same. You have heard that it was said. So this is Jesus looking at both culture and the way culture had interpreted the Bible. So his Bible interpretation brought into first century Judaism. You've heard it said of all, sometimes it's a direct quotation, like today from the Bible. Other times it's kind of a, a quotation plus the rules that they had gathered around it to make, it se make sense to their culture. So you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, each time Jesus says, here's the kingdom way, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you. And do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Jesus is saying, check your slapback, in fact. Not just clapback, check your slapback. So we are in a section of really tough stuff. We've looked at anger and lust and divorce and dishonesty. And today it's retaliation. 
And you might be thinking, man, next week it's got to get easier. Nope. Next week is the, the hardest one of all, the climax of what Jesus is trying to drive at. It is difficult. So he begins by saying, you've heard it said of old, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. This is by way the, the judicial system. That's what it is. And it sounds barbaric, doesn't it? If somebody pokes out your eye, you get to go over to that guy, hold him and gouge out his eye as well. Anyone want to do that? If somebody punches you and knocks out a tooth, then you get to hold that guy down, take a ball peen hammer and just bink, knock out that tooth as well, right? It's, there's a real brutal side to this. Like who wins in that world? Dentists and optometrists, that's it. Brutal, but there's a real wisdom in it. Parents, you know this wisdom. If you have a sibling, you know this wisdom, right? Anyone here have a younger sibling poke you? If your younger sibling pokes you, what did you do back to them? Punched him as hard as you could, right? That's what you did. If they punched you, what'd you do to them? You tackled them to the ground and like beat the snot out of them, right? That's what we did. If they splashed you with a little bit of water, what did you do to them? You picked them up and threw them in a mud puddle, right? If they kicked you, man, you got them down and you beat them within a half inch of their worthless life right? Now, was that reasonable? Was that justice? Was that fair? Was that proportionate? Yes, because you're bigger, right? That's the end of it. Yes, because it's bigger and I decide what I want to do. Well, that's been a problem in humans from Adam on to us, that we'd never respond proportionately. So this Old Testament law was doing two things. It was preventing overreaction and it was preventing vigilante justice because this had to go to court in order for you to get your tooth back or in order for you to get your eye back. So it was preventing those. And we still have it, don't we? We still go off. We still overreact. Google at some time. Road rage, right? Something just gets cut off. They don't signal or something happens. They don't see them. Something all of us have done at one point to somebody. We've been the misuser of our signals, right? And then all of a sudden it's nine millimeter out and they're shooting at someone. Well, that's an overreaction. And it happens all the time. So what history has demonstrated is this. Violence, violence at its best can keep violence in check, but it never stops violence. Violence at its best can keep violence in check, but it never stops violence. And so Jesus is coming into that kind of a system, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. We're gonna get what we deserve. It's gonna be fair. And he's saying, in the kingdom, there's a different path, a supernatural path. And he begins by this statement, if you notice. But I say to you, do not, resist the one who is evil. What does that mean? Does that mean if somebody is attacking you and wanting to murder you, you just take it and get killed? Does that mean if somebody is going to hurt your wife or your kids, you just sit by and allow it to happen? Do not resist the one who is evil. We have some examples in the Bible that are radical. You have Stephen in Acts chapter seven, the church's first martyr. 
Thousands, hundreds of thousands will follow in his footsteps where he preaches the gospel. And the response is a demonic overreaction. And they grab him and they throw him down and they pick up stones the size of cantaloupes and they beat him with those stones until he breathes his last. And with his last breath, what does Stephen do? He prays, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Whoa. You have Jesus beaten, whipped, nailed to a cross. And Jesus looks at those that had done that to him. And what does Jesus say? Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. There's some radical examples in the Bible. Is that us? Is that what we're supposed to do? Jesus gives us four clarifying examples. If you don't know what it means to not resist the evil one, Jesus says, here's how you do it. Let me just clarify it. And they're brilliant. Number one, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If someone slapped you or punched you, what would you do back to them? Humans have two basic responses, fight or flight. That's it, right? Those are our two beastly reactions. You're either gonna fight or you're gonna flight. You're gonna fight if you think you can take the person or you have a concealed carry commit permit or if you don't think so, you're gonna run away, right? That's the basic human response to someone acting violent towards you. Jesus though, has a third option. It's not fight, which simply accelerates violence. It's not flight running away, which allows violence. It's a third way and it's standing up to that violence. So let me try to get your head into what's being said right here. Uh, Jesus specifically says the right cheek. That's important. Because most of the people that would exist throughout history are right-handed. There's a minority that are left-handed. So most likely you're using your right hand. And let's say someone was left-handed. 2,000 years ago, your left hand was used as your toilet paper. So you didn't use it on people. You just wasn't, you didn't do it. It wasn't a cultural norm. So I know it's graphic, but that's the truth. So I'm getting to my point. If I use my right hand, which is what would have been used, and I slap you open-handed, what cheek do I hit you on? The left cheek. So when Jesus says, somebody slaps you on the right cheek, what does that mean I did? I backhanded you. This is not for injury. This was to insult you. This was to assert dominion. You only backhanded people you thought you were better than. This is to shame you. This is to put you in your place. This is to get a reaction out of you because they're a very honor-shame society. So when you're dishonored, it was, all right, I'm standing up for my honor. So this was all, today would be someone spitting in your face to shame you. This would be being brought in front of your company and everything bad you had done or every mistake you ever, ever made was laid out there as you stood in front of the whole company and then they fired you in front of your friends and coworkers just to shame you. Being brought in front of a church and all your sins recounted and then excommunicated and shunned by that church. 
It's a shameful act. It's an insult you. It's bah, backhand. What does Jesus say to do? Turn your other cheek. Not violently responding to accelerate violence, not running away from it to allow violence, standing up, standing your ground in dignity and power. And what you are saying is this, you can't shame me. You can't shame me on top of that. I will not participate in this game of honor and shame. I won't participate in your game of violence and accelerating violence. I'm not gonna participate in any of that. It's amazing, right? You can't take my honor because it doesn't come from you. My honor and my dignity come from a different source. That's what you're saying in that moment. Now think for a second, if you're somebody that watched this happen, so someone backhands somebody and that person stands there and just simply turns their other cheek, what would you think about that moment? Who in your head won that little interaction? Who was stronger? Who was more dignified? Who is more amazing? This is a subversive way of shaming the shamer. And what you're saying is this, you don't control me. Because when someone insults you, what, what are they trying to do? They're trying to get a reaction out of you. They're trying to get you to respond in a way that they control the narrative. But in this instance, you're saying, you don't have any hold on me. The shame that you're trying to give to me, I don't receive it. In fact, shame me more because you can't shame me. It's shaming the shamer. I'm free of you. You don't control me. I won't respond the way you think I will respond. It's brilliant. It's powerful. It's not allowing them to have any hold on you because you've been set free from it. Like it's subversive and brilliant. That's number one. Number two, you get sued. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If there's someone who's trying to take your stuff, how would you respond? Matt, I'd give him lead poisoning. That's what I would do. Yeah. What if they took you to court and they're going to do it the legal route? Who are you going to hire? I'm lawyering up, man. Make sure. Well, who gets rich in that game, right? The lawyers get rich. You and I don't get rich, right? Here's what Jesus is offering. Again, a third route. And it's almost comical. And you have to know the way that people dressed 2,000 years ago. A Jewish man would have two articles of clothing. The tunic would be that light kind of thing that, would be, that, that you'd wear all the time. You'd work in it. If you needed to, you could kind of roll up the bottom. It was called girding up your loins. You'd lift it up and you could work hard. So it was, it was kind of an undergarment, kind of an all-around thing. So this lawsuit is they're taking that undergarment from you, right? But then you had a second piece of clothing. The second piece of clothing was a coat or a cloak. It was illegal to take a man's cloak from him because that's how you stayed warm. So Deuteronomy 24, 13 says this. If he is a poor man, you shall not sleep in his pledge, his coat. You shall restore to him the pledge as the sun sets that he may sleep in his cloak and bless you. You couldn't take a man's coat, his cloak, because that's what kept him warm at night. He could die without it, 
right? So this is, this is Jesus subverting something right here. So imagine this. You're in court. Someone is suing you for your undergarments. You got a coat and undergarments. That's it. So Jesus says, guess what you do? You don't just let him have your undergarments. You hand him your cloak as well. What does that mean that man does not own anymore? Clothing. He is standing there in court naked, right? That's literally what just happened right here. How crazy is that? It's a way, again, of doing things differently. Hey, it's my right to keep my cloak. The law is on my side right here. But if you're going to take me to court to sue me for my fruit of the looms, it's so ridiculous. I'm giving you my coat as well. Now, how would that guy respond? Well, he could be like, this is ridiculous. I'm sorry, I'm out of here. He could take all your clothing and leave. The judge could get mad at you for being naked and put you in jail, but no one's gonna say that was normal. That was a normal day at court. Everyone's gonna be like, what just happened right there? That is so different. You're responding to people in a different way than they ever expected. In fact, you're seizing control of the situation and you're doing it in a way that's dignified as dignified as you can be naked in court, right? It's brilliant, it's subversive. You're saying, I don't care about my possessions. I'm free from that. If you really want my possessions, take them all. I don't care. Even my rights, the right I have in the law to a cloak, even that, I'll give up that right. I'll give up that right. Take my coat as well. Again, if you are a third party watching this interaction in court, who do you think won that? Who would you say, wow, that was amazing? The sewer or the dude that just said, here you go, take it all. See, Jesus is saying, you win the court of public opinion. The ask is real simple. The ask is real simple. Regard your rights, even the law. Regard your possessions with an open hand, using them to demonstrate a different kind of kingdom that you live in. That's the ask of Jesus. And it's brilliant. And even though you do that sometimes, and maybe you have done that, sometimes, even if you do it right, it can backfire on you. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 7, I think amplifying the same idea. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. You lost if you're in court. That's what the Bible says. Why not suffer wrong? Take my cloak. Take my fruit of the looms. I don't care. Why not rather be defrauded? Why not live a third way? Not fight or flight. Why not live a third way? Is what Paul is saying. And you can do all that right. And still people will say, meh, happened to me. So I had a truck, a 97 F-250 diesel truck, had two tanks, and I went in to get diesel, and uh, I had like a third of a tank and, and almost an empty tank in back. So I said, hey, fill it up. And the guy's like, hey, Pastor Matt, right, it's great seeing you. So he ends up putting gasoline in my diesel tank, right? Got like $40, gallon, $40 worth in. Before I noticed, I'm like, hey, whoa, 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 it's diesel. So he's like, oh man, don't tell anyone, I'll get fired from my job. I'm like, hey, fine, no problem. Fill up the back tank. I'll eat it. So I had to go home. I had to drain the tank, like $80 in fuel. It's half diesel, half gas. Like, what do you do with half diesel, half gas, right? 
other than make a bomb with it, I don't know what you do with it, right? So I'm like, I, I just ate it. I said, no problem. Never told anybody about it. And then this lady calls me at church. She's like, hey, there's a guy going around saying that you got him fired from his job because he put gasoline in your diesel truck. I'm like, what? Are you kidding me? I still have the gas and diesel at home right now. I never told anybody about that. Are you kidding me? I did not do that. And she's like, well, he is spreading rumors about you and saying all kinds of bad stuff about you. What are you going to do? I said, nothing. Why? You're not going to talk to him? Nope. Well, really? Yep. She said, well, then I'll go talk to him. I said, you go right ahead. Right? You can do everything right. And sometimes it'll even end bad, but that doesn't mean to stop doing things right. That doesn't mean you stop doing things the third route. That doesn't mean you stop doing things the way that Jesus calls you and I to do it. Okay. People come before my possessions. People come even before my rights because people are what matter. Okay. And then the third one is this. You're bullied. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. This is what the Romans could do. The Romans, 60 years before Jesus, had come in and they had occupied, taken over Israel. And so there were soldiers that, that lived and moved throughout the land of Israel. And there was a law that they could do this. So you are with your family, you're having a great picnic, you're at Riverside Park, maybe not Riverside Park, you're in your front lawn having a great picnic and you're sitting there. <laughs> and all of a sudden this soldier just comes up and he grabs you and says, carry my stuff. There's a law that said if a Roman soldier demanded you to carry his luggage, you had to carry luggage for that soldier for a mile. Can you imagine that? How dehumanizing that is. How you would feel like a second-class citizen in your own country. How shameful it was in front of your kids and your wife to be subjected to this kind of treatment. Brutal. So what would you do in that kind of a situation? You could form a rebel army, right? Guerrilla warfare. And they had them. They're called the Zealots, the Sicarii, the Dagger Men. Who, they, they did guerrilla warfare all the time against the Romans. That was one way. The other way was just put your head down and take it like a beat dog. What did Jesus say? Seize control of it. You gladly grab his stuff. While you're walking with him, you start saying, hey, tell me about your family. You got any brothers? Any sisters? Are you married? Do you have kids? Why'd you start in the army? What's your plans after you get out of the army? Right? And then after one mile's up, they say, hey, you've done a mile for me. You say, you know what? I like you so much. I'll go another mile with you. I like having this conversation with you. Because you realize you don't have the power to change Roman law, but you have the power to change one Roman heart. You say, I'm going to seize that opportunity right now to change a Roman heart. Who's in control in that situation? Who's doing a third way, a different way, a better way? You're doing it right there. Have you guys read the book Unbroken? The story of Louis Zamperini. The movie does not do the book justice because it ends in the really good part. So if you don't know the story, you don't know Louis Zamperini, amazing. World War II guy, you know, shot down, somehow survives like months out to sea. Gets taken by uh, the Japanese, put into these camps, brutal. He is beat up, beat up, beat up repeatedly by the Japanese guards. Very, very brutal. Unbelievable story, right? 
and then gets out of the camp, goes back to the United States because of that PTSD, alcoholic, ruin his marriage. Like he is just crazy. And then one day, he happens to stumble into a Billy Graham crusade and then gets saved by the power of Jesus Christ and his life is transformed. And if you don't know his story, read his book because he is so moved with compassion for those that had hurt him so brutally and beat him up so bad, been such bullies to him that he pays for his own ticket to go back to Japan and find his captors, the one that had done brutal things to him, finds most of them, can't find the bird, the worst of them, but finds most of them, forgives them hugs them and cries with them. Man, that's a brilliant third way. That's an unbelievable third way. That's what Jesus is asking us right here. Man, you don't have the power to change law a lot of times, but you sure have the power to change one heart if you choose to. And the third one, Jesus actually, or the fourth one, I should say, flips it. No no longer am I the one being shamed. Someone shameful is coming to me. So check this one out. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now it's flipped. In Jesus's time, one of the most shameful things you could ever be forced to do would be to beg. It meant this, read John chapter nine. You had sinned, your parents had sinned, you had done something wrong in life to be put in a position where now you're having to beg, right? It was as shameful of a thing as you could possibly do to be begging, asking. God was mad at you. You had done life wrong is what was being said. Today, I don't think it's any more thought of shameful, is it? I think pretty soon we're gonna have a high school class which is gonna be begging for beginners, right? It's gonna be like a career choice that you can choose. So very different world now today. Back then, hyper, hyper, hyper shameful. So here's what Jesus is saying. Even someone that you think deserves it, even someone that you think has earned their bad and earned everything they're getting, even that person, Jesus says, you know what? Kingdom people are moved with compassion and empathy for people that probably deserve what they got. That we're not to be a people that are saying, hey, you made your bed sleep in it. We're to be moved with compassion, even for people that have acted shamefully and are now in the repercussions of their shame. Well, Matt, what does that mean then? I mean, if I was to give to every single person begging today, I'd be broke because they're everywhere. And they might use what I give them to buy drugs or alcohol or trade it for sex or do evil with it. What, what am I supposed to do? I've been talking to the elders and my friends and charity about this. And here's like my, my line. I think Christians are to be good. Not necessarily nice. Does that make sense? I think sometimes we're shamed into being nice, but actually in being nice, we're not being good. So if you have a choice between being good or nice, we're supposed to choose being good. It's like this. Would you rather have a good doctor or a nice doctor? If you had the, you know, you can't have both. You gotta have one or the other. Would you rather have a good doctor or a nice doctor? Nice doctor says, hey man, well, 
You're overweight, you haven't been exercising, you've been watching a lot of TV, eating all the wrong food, and you got cancer. But you know what? I don't want to tell him that. So I'm just going to be nice. Hey, you're doing great, man. Keep it up. Keep watching TV. Keep dodging salads. Keep eating M&Ms and ice cream. You go, right? Because I don't want to be mean to you. That's nice. Good is, bro, you got to change. You got to get exercise in. I got to cut this cancer out of you. I got to put you on chemo until it almost kills you because you're at that point, right? Do you want good or nice? You want good. I think we're to be good. Nice, yes, but if I have a choice, I'm going to be good, not nice. What's actually good for this person? Not nice and easy, what's good for them? It's like, to me, the story is the story of the prodigal son. That the father says, okay, go. And, and they go, and they're gone. And the father never goes and tries to help him in the pig pen. Never like, hey, let me give you a tarp because the pig pen's a little bit damp. Hey, let me give you a sleep bag in the pig pen. Hey, let me feed you in the pig pen. Nope. If you're in the pig pen, live like the pigs. And if you're ready to leave the peg pen, the father's like, my door is wide open for you. I will throw a party for you. I'll put a robe on you. I'll put shoes on your feet. I'll put a, a ring on your finger if you're ready to leave the pig pen. That's good. May not seem nice, especially to dudes in the pig pen, but man, it's good. It's the right way. I think that's the way Christians are to be. We'll be good. If you're ready to change, man, we are ready to help you. Our door is wide open to you. We'll do anything we can for you. But if you want me to fix up your pig pen, I'm not doing it. Because sometimes the pig pen has to get you to the bottom, has to do its work for you to finally realize, I want to go back to the dad's house. I'm tired of living out here. I'm tired of this, and I want to go home. I think the pig pen serves that. And sometimes if we fix up the pig pen and put a blue tarp in it and make it really nice, I don't know if it does its job anymore. It's too nice now. I don't want to leave it. I think we're supposed to be good. Not necessarily nice in that way. What's the good I can do right here? Our hearts are always to be open to people. I'll help you if you're ready to help. If you want me to help you keep staying in the pig pen, I can't do that. I'll pray for you. Pray it does its work for you. Pray that you come to your senses. Pray that you come home. But I'm not gonna do that, but I'll be good to you. And one of my big prayers right now, and I've talked to the elders, and I've talked to people about this, is I would love to start some kind of a drug rehab program somewhere out in the middle of nowhere where just get people away and we take everything we know about all that we're learning and say, we are gonna help you. If you really wanna get off this, if you really wanna change, if you're tired of this, man, we got a wide open door for you. If you want me to help you here, I can't. I can't do that because that's not good for you. But I will, we will walk with you and help you in any way you can out at our place. I would love that. If you are a prayer, put that on your prayer list. Because I think that's one of the biggest needs in our country right now. How can we help people that are in the pig pen that actually want to get out? And I want to be a church that says, we'll help those kind of people. Brilliant. So let me conclude with some comments. Jesus, I think, is saying this. In the kingdom, he's not wanting mercenary tight-fisted, penny-pinching, eye-for-an-eye people, which we can become very easily by the world we live in. Also, I don't think Jesus is saying Christians can never be in law enforcement, which is the way some people take this text. I think there's plenty of other texts. You can read Romans 13, other places that say, no, that's not true, 
right? That the right position for a Christian, not necessarily pacifism or violence, the right position for a Christian is always in the middle. It's the third way, it's this, I wanna stop evil. A Christian should always be someone that says, my job in this world is to stop evil. And I start with myself. We'll get to Matthew 7 where Jesus says, before you try to take the speck of sawdust out in someone else's eye, get the two by four out of your own eye. Take care of your own junk so you're healthy enough to help somebody else. So stopping evil begins with me. It's Psalm 139, 23, 24. Lord, search my heart. See if there'd be any wicked way and lead me on the path everlasting. And then it's stopping evil in others, right? Because evil will hurt both the abuser and the abused, both the victimizer and the, it's gonna hurt them both because that's what evil does. It's a grenade that hits everyone around it. And by all goodly, kind means necessary, I will stop evil. I will stand between the victim and the victimizer, whatever that requires. That's the position of the Christian. It means this, I think. I have to stop caring about myself. My rights to a cloak or my first amendment right or whatever it is, we always cling to our rights. Jesus would say, there's a time where you give up your cloak. You give up your right. Not about my rights, not about my possessions, not about my plans, not about my needs. There's something bigger that's happening right now. And I wanna be a partner in that kingdom and a partner in that. It might be at work. You have a bad boss. The bad boss knows there's his responsibilities and he's always trying to push them off onto you. What do you do in that situation? You could fight or flight. You could run away from the job or get mad at him. Or you could take a third route, which is the strong, dignified route where you say, hey, boss, are there any more of your jobs that you want me to do? Right? You're both acknowledging what he's doing and then saying, no problem, I'll do them. It's a third route. It's the Jesus route. It's the kingdom route. I think that's what this all means. And it's brilliant and it's right and it's good. It means you're gonna do things different. So I remember I did this study called Chasing the King. And it was a long time ago when we were at Babe's Bakery. That was our office. So 2007, 2008, and it was men and we were getting together and we were trying to figure out how do we chase Jesus? How do we do stuff like this? And afterwards I'd have a Q&A. And there was this guy, I'm embellishing the story slightly, but not much, slightly. So he's like, he just said, Matt, my wife is tough. I said, great, on the way home, buy her some flowers. He's like, no, man, she's got a fiery temper. I said, no problem, go home, buy her some flowers and clean the house. Do something that shocks her, right? He's like, no, Matt, I mean, literally, she has a fiery temper. Fire came out of her eyes and killed my dog, right? Like, that's what she is. I said, buy some flowers and a fire extinguisher, okay? Now she spits in my face, buy some water and a towel, okay? And I was just marching, don't do things like the way the world does them. Do them differently because that's how you change the world. It changes things, it works. I've got example after example after example. My favorite, the one I'll share is this. It's Moses Palouse, one of the most brilliant men, holy men I've ever met in my life. Like he just, you, you could feel God's presence around him. Just, I, I don't know anyone like him. And he has a book called Missionary Challenge. We have copies of it. Unbelievable. So Moses Palouse in 1977 was called from his comfortable place in Kerala, just it's paradise, I've been there as well, to one of the hardest places on earth for Christians called Rameshwaram. It's the second most holy site for all of Hinduism, right? 
So this is the set. There's no Christians there, period. Not a Christian on this island. He's called there to share Jesus Christ. That would be like you or me being called to Mecca, the center of Islam. And we have to go there with an I heart Jesus shirt on, reading the Bible while we stand on the Quran. That's what he did. And he got the snot kicked out of him. Broken ribs in the hospital multiple times. There was a price on his head for a while, $100,000, and the police chief was in on it. The church that he built there, four times it was burned to the ground. The fifth time, he made it of concrete and brick. It's like the three little pigs, right? Like, no, you can't break this one down. Like, you just can't believe his story. So what does he do in the midst of this? Is it fight? Or is it flight? He chose the kingdom way. Don't be overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. So this is what they started doing. They started taking care of the widows of Ramashwaram. And every week they would, they would get together clothing and food and they would take it out and they would share it with the widows. They started taking every baby. There's this thing in Hinduism where uh, because of dowries in this system, girl babies are either killed or they're abandoned. So they were just, there's like, uh, when my wife and I were there, during the two weeks we were there, two of these infant babies came in. That's how often they came in. So the government doesn't know what to do with them. Like, what do we do with all these babies that show up? Body of Christ ministry said, give us every single baby, we'll take them all. So all of a sudden the government has this problem and then body of Christ ministry says a solution. So they're like, really? Yeah, we'll take them all. And they put them into school and they adopt them out. They do all kinds of brilliant stuff with them. So now the government's like, wow, this place is actually really helpful. It's amazing. In India, you have to pay to send your kids to school. Well, Ramashwaram is a very poor community. And so most of the people are fishermen. They can't afford to send their kids to school. So they know that their kids are going to be not fishermen. They're never going to have an opportunity to get out of this. Body of Christ Ministry started two gigantic schools. They got about a thousand students in each one. And every one of them is like, whatever it means necessary, we'll make sure your kids get educated. If all you can do is give us a fish, we'll take the fish. Have a partner in this somehow, have some stake in this, but we'll make sure your kids get educated, right? Then the other problem in this town is this, millions come there as a pilgrimage in Hinduism. And they'll bring with them these mentally handicapped people, an uncle, an aunt, a kid, a grandpa, a grandma, whatever it is. And then when they leave, they just leave them there. So the streets of Ramashwam are just full of these like guys that have these crazy hairdos and clothes that are rotting off of them, just mentally, mentally handicapped people. And because of the caste system there, no one helps them. Like you deserve this, you did something wrong. And if they're gonna feed them, they won't let them touch their utensils. They'll take the food out and they'll throw it in the dirt. I've watched them do it. And these mentally handicapped people will just eat it right out of the dirt, right off the ground. It's brutal. So Body of Christ Ministry said, this is unacceptable. And they'll go around, they'll take a van, and they'll pick them all up and they'll bring them back to their base and they'll give them haircuts and wash them and clothe them. And then they'll say, as long as you want to stay here, you can stay here. Brilliant. We got a partner in one of those. Uh, we went to this place when I was there. I, I call it the unhappiest place on earth. It was a tribal village. So there's these tribes in this part of India that they're trying to like settle and stop being nomadic. So it's the projects of India. If you can imagine that, the projects of Southeast India. And so we had to drive up there, way up there. You're out in the middle of nowhere. And then you hike up about three miles, kind of up the side of this hill. And then there's this village, if you can call it that. And so they're trying to like civilize this tribe. And the way that they did it was they made them houses. But the houses they made are made of concrete. They're six feet by 12 feet. Concrete walls, 
Tin roof, no windows. They're the most depressing structures. Like if you're gonna make a depressing structure, you couldn't do it better than the way they did it there. And then on top of that, the reason why they put them there is no one wants this land because there's no water. It's a desert, side of the hill desert. The people have to walk two miles to a mud hole that every animal uses and get their water from it. Like the most depressing place I've ever been. Wind blowing, not a green thing on that area, just desert, nasty, concrete, depressing. And then we were asked to pray for this lady. And we went into the, her little concrete house, husband's there, baby's like clinging to her. She can't even get up. And you can tell she's in really bad shape because she'd been doing circles on that concrete floor. And you could see the circles that she'd made by the diarrhea trail behind her, just smeared in this circle. And we prayed for her. She was the hottest. I've never felt someone so hot in my life. And so I was like, something's gotta happen here. She, she's gonna die. So we, we got an ambulance, they drive up as far as they could, and they actually went up and took a stretcher up and they took her down. And the doctor said, in 24 hours, she would have been dead. And then I'm like, well, we're gonna send her back to that? She, they're gonna die. I mean, this, this system doesn't work. And Billy said, they have to have a well up there. That's what they have to have. I said, let's drill a well up there. He's like, it's impossible. You can't get a well up to the side of a mountain. I said, Billy, I think Billy is Moses' son. He'll be here in October, amazing man. Billy said, okay, I'll try it. They rented this like six by six monster truck thing and actually drug a well driller up there and they drilled a well. We paid for it, Edgewater paid for it and it transformed that city. They have gardens now. Like it's unbelievable. And a government official has to make a yearly visit to it a year after they drilled that well and now they've got tomatoes and cucumbers and melons and all these brilliant stuff up there. The, the government official showed up and was like, what happened here? This was the... Worst place on earth, what happened here? And they said, Body of Christ Ministries drilled this so well. So the guy calls Billy, here's the whole story of what happened. And this is, and I quote, this is what this man said to Billy. He said, if you keep doing this good, all of India will be Christian. Don't be overcome of evil, overcome evil with good. Now, when you go around Rameshwaram, it's transformed. In 2009, for the first time in 30 years, they were allowed to celebrate Christmas publicly. The police chief, last time I was there, in church, I get introduced to the police chief. This is the police chief that tried to kill me. They had the $100,000 on my head. And now he's a Christian. And now he comes to church now. He's been transformed. Because you don't get overcome of evil. You overcome evil with good. It's the third way. It's Jesus's way. It's the kingdom way. And it works. It's strong. It's dignified. It's not accelerating violence and it's not allowing violence. It's with dignity, standing up to it and providing a different way. Here's what I would suggest to you. Every morning, for just this week, just try it this week. When you get up, get your coffee, do your ice plunge, whatever you do, and then meditate on these verses. And ask yourself this question today. Whatever violence comes towards me, whether it's words or action or whatever it is, whatever, whenever I feel like retaliating or fight or flighting, Jesus, this week I'm praying that I respond in a third way, the kingdom way, the Jesus way. And I want you to see if your week isn't a lot better because Jesus's way is so much better. Try it for this week. What's the third way? What's Jesus's way? What's the real way? 